This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Jason and I run to this next guest. We do. We really do I look love. forward to it every week. <laughs> Me too. I really do. Um, I do want to just put out there as we get ready to talk with Dr. Ian Lusbader, um, a stunning and disturbing statistic, and you can read about it. Uh, in depth on the Bloomberg, but the U.S. will top 200,000 deaths from the novel coronavirus in coming days. So talk about a milestone. So let's talk about that and talk about where we are in the virus and and the race for a vaccine. Dr. Ian Lusbader is back with us, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York City. Um, Dr. Lusbader, truly, Jason and I look forward to these weekly conversations. How are you? My pleasure. Always, uh, always great to be with you guys, and I hope you have a uh, healthy week, a safe weekend. And uh, definitely, it's uh, it's a challenge with all the data coming in. It's uh, hard to coordinate it all, but we'll try and make sense of it. So, you know, Ian, I wanted to ask you about something because there's a great article. I'm going to put it out on Twitter, and there's a full personal disclosure here. Uh, great piece in Time Magazine that was floated among my family because my aunt in Atlanta, who is a nutritionist at Emory, um, she is part of a vaccine trial and she's interviewed in this story and it's the Moderna vaccine. And it gave me, you know, some measure of hope in terms of her being interviewed and one of the and what they're talking about in terms of all these vaccines moving forward. Now, there are a lot of cautions in this piece as well. And it talks about, you know, the need for two shots and the fact that, you know, there's all these different things going on. We don't know exactly what is going to work, what combination of things are going to work, the efficacy and the safety. What's the thing that you've heard of late that's the most important when it comes to vaccines, Ian? You know, this is really uncharted territory. We we haven't dealt with a pandemic of this size really since 1918, uh, you know, the so-called Spanish flu. And we've had the swine flu and other uh, epidemics and pandemics. But this is really uncharted territory. And we're learning as we go in terms of the different manifestations and the diffuse clotting and and so forth and how some people have a very mild uh, case and other people succumb. So I think we're learning a number of things. One is that even people who have the disease and who develop antibodies do have lower antibody levels along the way. And I've had a number of patients with very high antibody levels who, who do relatively well with the, with the infection. And over time, uh, we've, we've checked their antibodies, and the levels definitely seem to drop. Now, we don't know how far down they will go, and we don't know if they have a cellular or a T-cell response that will protect them. But this really does argue for everyone getting a vaccine. We also don't know which is really going to be the most effective vaccine. Is it a messenger RNA? You know, is it a different technique? Uh, That we're really going to have to see. We're just starting to get the data from the phase three trials with um, 
you know, tens of thousands of patients getting getting tested. And overall, it looks like at this point that, that it does seem fairly safe. There was that one case with AstraZeneca, mm-hmm. and there may be other cases that we'll learn about. But overall, it appears the vaccines are fairly safe, and from what I'm hearing, fairly effective. Now, how long that will be, or will people need a, a booster shot, which they probably will, I think we're going to have to kind of see how that goes. But of course, in the interim, you know, the cases are, are in, you know, have continue. And, and of course, unfortunately, the deaths now up to, you know, over 200,000. We did anticipate these numbers. These numbers yeah. were just based on the trajectory. They shouldn't be, you know, of course, they're upsetting, but they shouldn't be shocking because we, uh, these numbers were all really guesstimated along the way. So I think we're making some progress. So I do want to ask you about a vaccine, though, because I'm thinking, okay, I'm at some point going to be taking a vaccine. Should we wait for the one that is the most effective? Is there complications with taking multiple vaccines? Like, I want to understand this as an individual. I think that great questions, Carol, as as always. I don't think we have those answers. And, and is it possible that people may need two different kinds of the vaccines? In other words, a, a messenger RNA and perhaps another one. I think it's way too early to determine that. And I think the first priority, you know, will be those frontline workers and healthcare workers who, who need some protection when they're encountering patients. Um, and I do suspect that uh, eventually, as more and more people get vaccinated, it will be clear you know, whether combinations of vaccines work or, or whether you'll be protected. And I think we'll be able to check antibody levels along the way. And I think that will give us a bit of a clue. But I think the feeling is even if you have some exposure with a vaccine, even if you have some antibody response, that should help in reducing uh, the severity of the effects of the virus. And again, we we don't know whether this will come back as a seasonal coronavirus, which other coronaviruses, you know, are common cold viruses or seasonal flu viruses. But vaccinating everyone, just like we vaccinate everyone for the flu, should give some degree of protection. Do we ultimately, I mean, we're going to come back and talk, but just 30 seconds, do we ultimately, as a population, as a country, build up an immunity that we don't need vaccines in the future? No, you just said we're going to probably have to be taking these. Yeah, that's my sense. I I think for people who have the disease, they may be better protected. But we don't even know that because we do see antibodies that are high and do begin to drop down over time. We don't, will they go to zero? We don't know. When you read the headlines about banks saying, come on in, and then mm, got to go home, or de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, saying, yeah, we're going to hold off for a couple weeks, what do you make of it? Where are we at this point? It's definitely, again, uncharted territory, but I think everyone agrees it's important to get back to work, both for uh, economic health and, and psychological health. Although we do have a lot of patients who are very worried, uh, teachers and professors who are very worried about being in close proximity to uh, kids who, as we know, can harbor the virus with minimal symptoms. And so I think developing a, a good strategy to allow people to get back safely is important. 
And part of that, some of the data has come out that everyone wearing masks actually seems to be reducing the incidence of influenza Mm. as well as coronavirus, which Mm. makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously flu, I mean, they're both viruses and they both are respiratory viruses and both coughing, sneezing and and so forth. So I think the the whole mask concept uh, is going to be with us for, for a while, even during flu season. That being said, you need a strategy to bring people back. What some colleges are doing, um, you know, is the spit testing, the antigen tests, which can be helpful before people uh, come back to school. Uh, some of them are getting nasal swabs, which can be helpful. You know, in New York City, it's uh, not everyone has access to that, but I, I do think the schools can certainly do um, these pods where you rotate kids who come in in group, so, uh, smaller groups, because if one of those kids happens to get sick, then you isolate that group, but you don't affect the whole class. So there are a lot of strategies. And even the CDC is a little uh, unclear, perhaps, as to the best strategy. Uh, There's not unlimited testing. And they recently, as of today, actually just reversed course on whether or not you should test asymptomatic people. And I think certainly if um, uh, someone feels fine and they're going to visit someone at risk, an elderly parent or relative, uh, it does make sense to get a nasal swab. And if that's negative, you can feel really pretty reassured that even if you do masks or social distancing, that your risk of, uh, of injuring your, your relative is very low. Uh, whether or not a random encounter in an elevator or you hear someone in the office um, uh, had COVID, do you really need to be tested? I think that's individual. And if someone feels completely fine, sure, in the best of all worlds, it's probably not a bad idea to be tested. But I, I don't think people should panic about that because casual contact is uh, certainly outside if you're passing people and so forth. That's really a very low risk. I feel like in an ideal world, I mean, we've kind of gotten used to, so net, for most of us, wearing masks. Like Jason and I were kind of kidding, you know, that when I leave the house, I kind of, you know, if I forget, I'm like, oh my God, it's like, you know, not putting a seatbelt on in a car. It just has become such a part of our process. I do feel like, do we get to a point in our world, especially if these viruses are going to stick around in that, you know, taking a COVID test is going to be as routine as brushing our teeth every morning? Uh, Well, you know, perhaps for the time being, until we do get a vaccine, and just like people do not get routine flu shots, uh, routine flu testing, um, or nasal swabs, which we can do for influenza. People come into the ER very sick, high fever. Right. You know, you do a nasal swab, and you can determine if they have the flu or coronavirus or, or a variety of other respiratory pathogens. So I think when people get vaccinated, and I understand the anti-vax you know, fears, but when these are really safe and tested, um, I think that will significantly reduce the need for everyone to be tested on a very frequent basis, unless there's something that's really suspicious. In the meantime, wear a mask, right? In the meantime, wear a mask, <laughs> use your head, do social distancing. And the, and the number of cases, certainly in the Northeast and, and in areas, pockets, that are careful, that uh, the number of cases um, does seem to be going down. And hopefully that second wave will not be as yeah. bad as we think. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it does feel like, uh, and our thanks to Dr. Ian Lesbader, I mean, it, it does feel like, the science, even the sort of retroactive science, basically says, had we been wearing masks in much greater numbers back in the spring, those numbers don't hit where they hit when it comes to sickness and death. The science is pretty clear on this from the CDC, totally. from Johns Hopkins and elsewhere. 
Uh, listen, Morgan Freeman, he's saying wear a mask. Keep wear a Mor- mask. Keep Morgan safe. Keep all of us safe. Listen, I now know that if we get viruses like this in the future, like right away, I bet most of us will put on a mask. I've got like a it's cool not mask e- I was wearing in the office yesterday. It's like a, it's like a festive Darth Vader mask. <laughs> You're so cool, Jason Kelly. All right, our thanks, thanks to my to sister-in-law for that one. Ian Les Bader over at NYU Langone Medical Center. Really a great go-to voice for us. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well... I love this pairing. Max Chafkin and Joel Weber doesn't get much better than that on a Friday. Plus, Palantir, it is a nutty company, to use a a term of art, as it were. Max Chafkin wrote the story, Palantir bad-mouthing big tech while taking its tech public. Checks out. We are talking about Peter Thiel, after all. He joins us on the phone from Queens. Joel Weber, he joins us from Massachusetts. All right, JW, set this up for us. Uh, so, so I think Max has been um, really uh, just one of these watchers of Silicon Valley for years, and uh, he spoke up about this one because Palantir has been a really interesting company and one that Business Week has covered uh, uh, more than once. Um, and you know, he reminded us that there's a direct listing coming because this has been a company that's been privately held, uh, and now it will become public uh, just around the corner. But in the process of sort of, you know, its walk up to its direct listing, it's opting to go public via direct listing rather than an IPO. It's also a little ironic because of the company's um, uh, sort of anti-Silicon Valley stance that it's also taken. Uh, and that kind of also speaks to, uh, uh, you know, the, the company's little bit of its heritage because obviously it's, um, you know, Peter Thiel backed. So, so Max, talk to us about what Palantir... Uh, it, its business looks like and why it's so relevant in this moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, so it's really interesting. It's been, uh, as you say, it's been around for a long time, 17 years. The company, um, it, most people probably don't know much about it. If they do know about it, they know it's vaguely controversial. It's vaguely sort of wrapped up with um, intelligence work. Uh, the company was founded by Peter Thiel, the, the venture capitalist, founder of PayPal, after um, – after 9/11, and 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 was famously used by the CIA, uh, you know, during that period. I mean, what's 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 pretty interesting here, uh, besides all the all the sort of hot button issues, is you have this company that, when you look at its financials, look not especially great. I mean, you know, it's it's it, it's it's losing hundreds of millions of dollars, and it's been around for 17 years. That's kind of the the the, the skeptical case. The, the more positive case that you hear from investors, from the company, um, is that COVID and, and kind of the, the way that COVID has shifted the economy has been, you know, a really big boon to Palantir in, in a couple of different ways. It's led to new contracts. Obviously, Palantir has all these, you know, relationships, relationships in government. So they have a, a contract with the uh, HHS, uh, the U.S. Uh, Department of Health and Human Services. It's worth like 21 million bucks. They, they've been doing a lot of sort of government work and it's dramatically changed um the numbers i mean in other words their their cost structure because in the past palantir the big knock on this company is that hey it's not a tech company it's actually a a, sort of a consulting company they're flying people all over the world uh to sell their products and to set up these sort of software uh these sort of big expensive software engagements and and that's super expensive and you've seen their their sort of costs go way down over the last um six months or so 
I, you know, what's interesting, Max, is a couple things that really jump out for me. First of all, I mean, this is a company that has thrived, as you say, your words, under President Trump. It's also a company, though, <laughs> and we get critical of com- companies and tech companies in particular, that's controlled by a trifecta. Yeah, this is another one of these kind of, uh, you know, founder-controlled arrangements. And it shouldn't be surprising because, you know, Peter Thiel uh, was involved in the original kind of founder-controlled mm-hmm. arrangement, which is the, is the one that Mark Zuckerberg enjoys and which is really the model for all this stuff. I mean, he started a venture capital firm called Founders Fund that's basically all about this. Um, so no surprise, but the structure is, is pretty weird. I mean, you have these three co-founders. They're, they own a special class of, of share. It, it's in a trust. That trust controls 50%. There's some, probably some additional stock owned by Keel and these guys um, on top of that, plus a board that is, you know, it, it's, I, I, I'm not sure what the legal def, um, sort of definition of independence is, but these are a lot of people with close relationships with, the, with Peel and the founding team. So there's sort of a lot of questions on independence. Anyone who's buying into this company is not going to expect to have a huge amount of, of input. And Palantir's sort of being straight up with that and saying, you know, this is, you know, this is a situation, you know, take it or leave it, which we've seen from Silicon Valley, you know, a lot over the last 15 years. And um, it's mostly worked out and sometimes it doesn't work out. So, you know, we'll, we'll see once the, once the listing happens. I, I think that that's a really important and fascinating element of this. It's that, you know, the, the way that this company is going public is untraditional. It's opting for a direct listing over the IPO. But then on top of it, it's like there's this wedge that the company is opting to, to put between itself and its potential shareholders. And the shareholders, sure, you get shares in the company and like, you know, things to Max's earlier point, like on paper, this company has been around for a while, but also hasn't had great financials. So, you know, what, what is in it for investors uh, kind of maybe remains to be determined here um, since there, there could be very little oversight. But Max, that brings me to the, the other thing I want to say, which is, you know, while other tech companies in particular have used similar kind of share class arrangements, one thing that's interesting about Palantir is back to the, the headline, the bad mouthing of Silicon Valley. What's that about? Yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing this a lot in, you know, just across the economy, honestly. But but where there's a lot of uncertainty right now and uh, around the around the 2020 election and Palantir, um, obviously, that is a huge bearing on, on, on Palantir's future because Palantir has has these gigantic contracts with the U.S. government. The uh, U.S. government is currently controlled by President Trump, who has close relationships with uh, Teal and, you know, and, 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 and other members of the sort of Palantir team. And, and so what's happening is Palantir about a year ago um, was, was getting hit really hard by protests over work it was doing for um, ICE, uh, basically, uh, you know, providing software systems for, you know, for, for, for the U.S. Uh, immigration authorities. That led to protests. And, and, and this is kind of the way they've decided to play it, they, whereas a lot of these other companies have tried to sort of, you know, work with their employees or, you know, like basically, you know, bend to their employees, uh, you know, wishes. Palantir right. is taking a different road, which is much more like, no, this is what we're doing. You can you can take it or leave it. You can have a good faith disagreement. But we do business with the U.S. government and this is the U.S. government right now, which is, you know, obviously a a position that's probably, you know, more popular with conservatives than, than with liberals, and Silicon Valley is full of liberals. So, so I think we're sort of seeing a, a, a bit of a political play, right. where, where they're declaring themselves allied in some sense, 
with, you know, with, with moderates and conservatives, at, you know, at the expense of liberals. Fascinating. And all so eyes cool. will be on Palantir next week with that direct listing. Thank you so much. Max Chafkin, you're the best. Great to hear your voice. Features editor for Bloomberg Business Week. Joining us from Queens, Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. He joined us from Massachusetts. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, time to do a little Business Week economics. And you just heard a little bit of the big interview this morning that our own Michael McKee, you frequently hear the dulcet sounds of his voice on this radio program. He did catch up with Atlanta President Raphael Bostic down in the ATL earlier. Michael McKee was in New York, of course, because it's a remote world. Uh, but Raphael Bostic, of course, runs the Federal Reserve Bank down there. And he said Congress needs to provide additional fiscal support for the U.S. economy. That economy obviously has lost momentum. Let's take a listen to what he has to say before we get into a conversation with our in-house expert. Check it out. What I would tell a policymaker is, look, there are lots of sectors where there's still a lot of pain and disruption that's going on. There are a lot of families who uh, have a significant amount of uncertainty, and those things will wear on our psyche and our ability to grow. So I would encourage them to think about ways that they might provide support to to help those who are in more precarious positions uh, not have to struggle and worry. Right. Provide some more aid for those who really need it. Of course, that's Mike McKee of Bloomberg. His interview with Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic. Let's get into this uh, and what our Yelena Shalecheva has to say, senior U.S. economist at Bloomberg Economics, joining us on the phone from Long Island. Uh, this for our segment of Business Economics, Business Week Economics on this Friday. So, Yelena, I mean, man, I feel like everybody agrees we need some more aid. We need some more federal assistance because of the impact of the virus. Um, your thoughts on what Bostic had to say and how you see it. I know we've talked about this before. Sure. But uh, basically, uh, he is uh, uh, saying the same thing a lot of uh, Federal Reserve members have already told us, including Chair Powell, is that, uh, well, it has to do with the expiration of the $600 add-on to benefits, uh, to claims, to jobless claims benefits, uh, that expired at the end of July, and uh, the $300 add-on um, that uh, was a result of the executive orders signed by uh, President Trump in the beginning of August, they have also expired. So now the most vulnerable uh, layer of the population uh, does not get those extra benefits. And these are the people who uh, actually spend uh, more of their income than uh, the rest of the population. So what happened is that people who have higher propensity to consume uh, in a much worse position right now, and we will see the impact of this, um, uh, you know, expiration of extra income on consumer spending. Right. It just we will not see that in the third quarter. We will see it in the fourth quarter and going into next year. And that's why we need this extra support from fiscal authorities. And yet, what if we don't get it? What's the the worst case scenario that we're facing or likely scenario if we don't get it? That's a great question, Jason. Excellent question indeed. So our estimates indicate that uh, the impact of that uh, would be in the order of several percentage points of uh, GDP. So... If you think about it in the context of a 28% rebound in the third quarter that we are projecting, well, that's not a big deal. 
But if you think about it in terms of uh, potential growth or average growth over the last several years of roughly 2 to 3%, if you subtract 5% from uh, growth in the fourth quarter, you may end up with negative growth. So huh. our projection is for a very slow growth in the fourth quarter, and we'll see what happens in the first quarter. If uh, things get worse, we may see negative growth again. St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard also making some comments. He's, quote, optimistic that the U.S. can get growth all the way back. Are you as optimistic? I mean, I guess, yeah, anything can happen. It just depends how long it takes to get there, right, Elena? Absolutely agree with you, Carol. We will get there. The question is when. And, uh, you know, the fiscal fiscal package is just needed because uh, that will help us to get uh, there faster. So uh, the longer we wait, the more uh, permanent uh, these losses in economic momentum uh, will become. So it's not going to be just about the pandemic, but uh, it will be more of uh, losses in income, uh, in, in growth overall, okay. just simply because this is a recession. And so what's the next sort of most important data point that we're going to get? Obviously, the the higher frequency data we've come to rely on, Yelena, when it comes to jobless claims. (laughs) We heard retail sales earlier this week, I believe. Like, What else are you guys looking for that will help you start to synthesize this latest picture? So you you named those uh, the next payrolls report. We'll see if we get if we still uh, continue to get positive uh, employment readings. So what happens with the data? And that's a very important point to to remember is that we are entering the season when seasonal factors will become unfavorable to economic growth. So in other words, uh, seasonal factors would expect. Uh, a pickup in uh, personal uh, consumption because we are approaching the holiday season. Uh, so uh, as well as seasonal factors, we'll expect uh, more hiring because of this holiday season. So uh, it will be much harder to overcome these expectations for uh, raw economic data to pick up uh, as strongly as uh, needed. So what that means is that we may start getting negative surprises in terms of the data just simply because this whole thing disrupted seasonal factors to such a degree that it was supporting growth earlier and now uh, as we end in the uh, final stages of the year that may start to weigh on economic growth. All right, Yelena Shalevcheva, thank you so much. Really good to catch up with you. Great context, yeah. especially given what we've been hearing uh, from the Fed. Was it really just two days ago that we heard oh, from yeah. Jay Powell? I know. I know. That's why that, there was one day this week where I'm like, it is, welcome to Bloomberg Business Week. It is, I really had It is next Thursday. No yeah, idea. I mean, it's just, it's bananas. All right. Yeah. Have a great weekend, Yelena Shalevcheva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. And she listen, joined us on the phone from Long Island. Think about how much we talk about the wealth gap, right, and, and trying to fix it, especially this is something that has been such an important topic that we understand, you know, is such a big part of our society, such a big problem. You know, <laughs> we're just going to have forget about fixing that. We're just going to try to make sure people can put food on their table right. uh, if we don't kind of get this one right.
which yeah, is Yeah, looking horrendous. forward to, speaking of economics, this is a deep tease or a, a, a forward tease. We are going to catch up, I believe, next week with Peter Atwater, yes. right, from yes. William and & Mary. And, Can't wait. you know, he is the economist, very smart, who has put forth this notion of the K-shaped recovery. I feel like I talk about the K-shaped recovery just about every day now. Yeah. I mean, I find ways to enter it into the conversation, even from a personal perspective, in terms of, like, understanding our own consumption patterns yeah. versus other people's and, you know, and, and candidly, like, seeing it as a lens for different companies and different activities and different regions and all those different things. It's really critical. Well, isn't it crazy? Because for so long we were like, is it the Nike swoosh? Is it right. a U? Is it a V? Is it a W? Is it a what? And then when Peter came out and he talked about the K-shaped recovery, it was like, snap. Yeah. That explained so much because we agreed. We know people. We have been very lucky that our lives have not changed too much. There are others who they're lives have been turned completely upside down and they don't know what their future looks like i'm driving in my car i turn on the radio how about you let me drive oh no 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 who's gonna drive you home honey please i'll do the driving drive home excuse me i want to drive just drive baby it's the question that drives us This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everyone. Time for the drive to the close. George Schultze is with us. Founder of Schultze Asset Management based in Rybrook, New York. And that's where we find him on this Friday. George, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Happy Friday. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Good to be back, Carol. How are you? Uh, doing okay. Uh, it was kind of a hefty lift this week uh, between M&A activity, some market pullback, um, just a lot going on, Fed meeting. So tell us about, you know, kind of how you see the outlook. I mean, you specialize in distressed and event-driven situations. So how does the distressed world, first of all, um, look to you? And when it comes to event-driven situations, you had a lot with all that M&A this week. Yeah, uh, the distressed world has been pretty busy. There's been a lot of activity, especially in the energy space. Mm. And, you know, there's just been so much leverage out there that's now getting restructured. A big catalyst, of course, has been COVID and the slowdown in the economy due to all the, uh, you know, quarantines. So there's been a lot of activity. But I would say energy is uh, sort of ground zero for distressed land these days. And what is the M&A activity? Because we had sort of a merger Monday like we haven't had in quite some time uh, this week. What does it tell you? And is it representative, I guess, of what you're seeing out there in terms of the broader deal landscape? I think the deal landscape, Jason, is very good right now. Um, you know, the outlook is for a continuing recovery from the COVID you know, pandemic days and crisis. Um, you know, Powell this week said he's going to, you know, basically hold interest rates down, you know, at super low levels for possibly two to three years. So companies have access to capital, and there's an opportunity for them to merge. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in different industries. There's a lot of reasons for merging, you know, whether it's cost savings or growth. Um, but, but you know, we would certainly expect that to continue. Well, it's interesting you said so Energy is ground zero for distress today. What kind of energy are you looking at and want to be investing in? So there's a lot of that opportunity, I would say, in the oil patch as well as the natural gas patch. Um, you know, in terms of energy, both those sectors had really sold off. And 
you know, the overall energy space just has sort of a disproportionate amount of high-yield and junk-rated debt. And so now you're seeing a, a mad dash to the courthouse for all sorts of restructurings. And I think coming out of that, there'll be a lot of interesting opportunities with companies at extremely low valuations. So you are in the midst of participating in one of our favorite things to talk about here in 2020. Blank check companies. You got a SPAC. Yeah. You're one of the cool kids uh, doing this. Um, tell us about it. Tell us about your uh, acquisition in particular. I love the name Clever Leaves. Yeah, Clever Leaves is a is a disruptive business. Um, we like it a lot, and it's a, it's a, you know our, our selected SPAC target. Um, we looked at dozens of different companies, and we found this one to be the best one for our SPAC. Um, it's got a great it's got a great management team, and its business plan is really to disrupt the whole cannabis industry with super low cost production, a global footprint. Um, it's really exciting, you know, and and uh, we're looking forward to. Seeing this merger close into the fourth quarter of this year, the company will be listed on NASDAQ. And, uh, you know, I think the outlook for it in terms of market share, you know, penetration with, you know, exceedingly low costs is excellent. And so why are SPACs so hot? I mean, literally, I mean, and I'm not taking anything away from you, but it's like we have joked, like, Dude, everybody's got a SPAC. I mean, Baron Davis, the uh, two-time NBA All-Star. Uh, we have news on him doing a SPAC today. Billy Bean from Moneyball fame. Like, what is it about this particular um, method and methodology, I guess, of getting something public or making an acquisition, more to the point, is so attractive right now? Yeah, yeah. I, I, SPACs fit a void, Jason. I mean, they, they, they really offer investors a combination of equity upside potential, if the right deal is found, the right company like Cleverleaves, as well as downside protection for an investor who wants liquidity and is frustrated with you know, exceedingly low interest rates, which have been low for so long. That's why SPACs are popular. It fits both of those requirements, downside protection that you get in the fixed income market. Um, a SPAC trust, you know, the cash in the SPAC trust sits in a, in a trust and you know, is invested in treasuries and you know, there's your downside protection. Then when and if a good deal is found, you can vote on it and get equity upside like we're looking to get and, and deliver to our shareholders with, uh, with Clever Leaves. If the, if the sponsor or management team fails, the good news for the investors is that they can still walk away and, and get par plus accrued interest, you know, even though it's a low rate of interest. So that's why they're popular, and we think they'll continue to be popular. The, the proof, though, is you know, how good the acquisitions are and how good the management teams are and the companies that you bring to market, because basically you're bringing you know, a private company to market. What why? we found here with Clever Leaves is just you know, it's, it's phenomenal. Well, why is it phenomenal? Because forgive me and my skepticism, but, you know, in terms of the cannabis market, we've seen the boom, we've seen the bust, <laughs> trying to figure out where we are. We have had a fair amount of CEOs on, and some certainly seem to be stronger players, no doubt about it, uh, getting bigger in the marketplace. And some of the smaller players, especially in the consumer side, consumer product side, um, we see some come out strong and then they fold. So I'm just curious, what is yep. it about, you know, this one that you said, okay, it's a go? It's a go, again, because of the management team, but, but really because of the business plan behind it as well. It's exceedingly low-cost production model. They, they produce at about 20 cents a gram. Mm -hmm. By the way, they're, they're, they're just a legal uh, cannabis producer, so they, they, they sell uh, uh, cannabis only for the medicinal market mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in markets where it's legal. 
Um, so they actually don't sell in the U.S. But right. you have the optionality for you know expansion into the U.S. when and if that market opens as well. But the, the I think the lower cost production element of it is so important because it's disruptive, and because of that, they're taking away market share and and, and even getting some of their competitors to give them significant business, like Canopy Growth recently did. Right. Is it though your expectation this is a takeout play once it goes public? Just got about forty seconds here. Yeah, I, I'm not projecting that just as of yet, Carol. I think mm. I think once it goes public, it's an execution story, and you know the the uh, the projections are conservative, but you know outstanding. So so we're going to let this management team do their work, and you know potentially there'll be some M and A activity in the future. We don't know, but for now, they're going to keep growing this business and and you know really proving themselves as public company operators. Yeah, it's interesting. We never know sort of what side uh, a company might be on, especially in this business, yeah. uh, this cannabis business, that's for sure. Well, congrats on that. Really good to catch up with you. George Schultze is the founder of Schultze Asset Management, also a part of the special purpose acquisition company, Cleverly's. Love the name. Well, very cool name. And I just think about Seven Cents Botanical Therapy. It was CDB Body and Skincare. We've had their CEO on. Mm-hmm. I've tried their products, loved it. They shut down during the virus, and now I don't know if they're—I don't know that they're bankrupt, but they're not operating. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just saying it's—it can be a tough go. But again, he's in the med- medicinal, so um, and where it's legal, and that's certainly a different business model. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.